0: Letter 5 I know what you're thinking. You're thinking. There she goes again. She gets the shittiest, most miserable life ever. Could it possibly get any worser? Yes, it could. And it fucking does. It's a wonder the poor maid never topped herself. If you must know, it did cross her brain. There was nights she would toss and turn. She only had to think of the fuckfest her life was, spread like muck as far as the eye can gather. In those privater moments, ending it all was the best daydream she could have. But here's what I'm about about to tell tell you next. Up that that garden garden path, path, there are some most most foul stenches. When I used to be Jenny whatever, there wasn't no clever sister to protect me. There wasn't no holy book with prophecies to warn me. That's why I died. Nowadays, because I was reborn again, I can talk for England again. Hurrah! But more than that, I feel better after what I say I feel. Just saying it makes me not feel what I feel no more. Not that I believe words is magical. That is utter bollocks. Although it is a fact of science that saying words in the right order can make stuff you don't want to think about vanish, like a puff in smoke. I got this out of the mouth of the cleverer sister I never knew I had. She could talk a cat into a cage. She liked being called Scarlet best. Her real name was Charlie. I call her Scarly, But that is a whole nother story for a whole nother day. Right now I will say this much. Soon as I met her, I knew straightaways I had some catching up to do. It was like Scarley was using a newer language. Even when she made sense, I don't suppose I could make heads of it, nor could I make tails of it neither. I didn't know her twisty ways of speaking. I had to pretend. It was most disquieting, being such a numpty copycat. And once I found out Scarley's methods and her fashions of saying what I wanted to say, that's when my miseries really and truly begun. Do you see? But I am skipping way too much ahead again. Here's how it goes each night, Jenny Whatever never slept one wink. All night long, all she'd done was daydream about how she might end her misery. She reckoned hanging was worst, cause one morning, She seen a bloke swinging off a scaffold. In them days, Jenny dossed on building sites in Lambeth. What happened was, she woke up. She had a stretch. She seen the bloke's boots out of the corner of her eye. Then, further up, she seen how this bloke's eyes was thick and bulging. She seen the rope strangling round his neck. When she seen his lips twitch, she bolted like fuck. Cause, as we both know, Jenny was always doing runners. She would stay awake in some damp shelter or other flea pit and maybe think about chucking herself off a building next. She would go to the highest car park in her daydreams to think this one over. Did she ever jump? Did she fuck? All that girl could imagine then was having to count the ages it takes to splash on the pavement. No spine. Falling so far, she might even have to take it back. But that would be unprofessional, because once you've gone to the trouble of ending it all from a high ledge in your daydreams, you need to finish the job. Am I right? Jenny thought about knives, too. She would think, where do you stick them? I ain't no surgeon. She would grab the biggest blade she could think of. She might hold up the pointy end and press it to her neck. But Jenny always shat herself then. Don't get me wrong. She could cut her arms and legs all day long. It made her less nervy. But that was all she'd done. She weren't about to hack at her boobs or nothing just to get at the aching heart beneath. If you was to say, Marley sounds a bit down in the doldrums tonight, you would have a point. I will grant you a point, but only to a point, cos none of this bollocks ain't about Marley. It's about Jenny, and Jenny died of her overdose which was the best way for her to go all along. If you want to know what Marley thinks, you only have to ask her maker. Amen. Even when Marley had it all and lost it overnight, she didn't do it, jenny. Here's the gospel straight out of its wrappings. When Marley got round to meeting Scarley, she finally thought she had something priceless. She thought this priceless thing was hers to keep forever. But no, that weren't right. Cos what it boils down to when it comes to having something priceless is Molly is the same as every other punter on the planet. She can't keep nothing. She might as well be dead. Only Molly can't die neither. Why so? Cos her lord and maker made this prophecy. Amen, I suppose. And what is this prophecy she speaks of? It is this. Marley is too perfect to die. She will shuffle on forever with nothing to keep or call her own. Scarley thought of the best words for the best way of being dead. What she said was, the wisdom of the druggista is the most commodious fashion of all. How so true. That is how Jenny would ever done it in the end. She drugged herself out of having to live her life. It was the only clever thing Jenny ever done. It's how I would do it if I could. But I can't, cause chemicals don't work. I tried, for old time's sake. I saved up. I bided a bunch of bags only the other day. I took my doses all at once. Surprise, surprise, Nothing fucking happened. You won’t credit this, but in my Jenny days, how I seen it, 10 packs of dazzle by tea time was all a girl needed. Only after dosing up could a sad bint like me be free of pain and off her rocker, while the drug's done the rest. Now. The drugs is just more dust on the sill. Which takes me neatly to the bit of my side of the story when I was Jenny and I died and come back to life. But let me say this first. While it is a wonder being dead and buried, being brought back to life ain't no picnic. They found me in a bin round the back of a waitrose. I can't tell you why. Jenny never did know thieving in Waitrose. I suppose we shall never know. All I got told was I died of my dazzled dose. They rushed my corpse to hospital. After the men in white performed their procedures with their spatulas and prodders, I needed to puke for a week. Men in white don't do miracles. They do science, which is slow and dull. Meantimes, the Holy Father in Heaven kept working his own wonders. One day, I shall tell you about the real miracles that happened after I got brought back from the dead. While I was in hospital, what they used to do their wonders was tubes and machines. Science might be able to make you breathe again, but that don't stop you feeling like shit. Have you ever been in hospital? They are boiling hot and too beige. The chicken nuggets was soggy. The nurses got angsty. They never talked English. The blokes in white leer at you in case you got anything worth leering at. And do you know what I shall tell you next? I loved every second. When you've been dossing and drugging your life away and then you die and get brought back, Being forced into a bed with sheets and blankets is something a girl could get used to. The men in white could monitor and medicate me all they liked. We had a whale of a time. They didn't want to never see me go. Before a while, my body was fit to skip and jump. But the scientists said their little shit from the dead needs to be kept snug and fed while they do more procedures. Here's why so. I told them I couldn't think who I was. I swore blind I couldn't remember not one thing. They believed it. It's a known symptom of being dead, they said. People don't remember fuck all after. They called in therapists and cyclists and all the other piss artists. None of them done the tricks. I might have strung medical science along and lived watered and fed for free for the rest of my shitty days. Just as it was getting good, that's when some bright female man in white decides then and there it's time to call the social. My hands are lovely. I have long fingers. They look best when the nails grow out. but. It is scientifically proven that if you say the word social in front of my face, I will bite my nails till they bleed. You may think I need counselling, but let's get one thing straight. If that's your only habit after dying of a drug's dose, biting your nails when nervy is a bonus. I will concede your point, though. Biting is not a comely thing to do. By the time the ladies from the social turned up for their chat, I didn't have no nails left. I was chewing bits off my fingers. Because they don't chat with you. They chat in you. They do this till you break. Within minutes they got me saying how I was in care one time. They got me saying how I thought my name was Jenny Whatever. I tried saying how I didn't think Whatever was a real name. But the ladies got more chatty then. They got me saying how I was born in Cambridge. I was forced to come over faint. I told them I will have to call the nurse for assistance. As they sloped off, I swore solid I couldn't remember my real names, no matter what. But the damage was done. My fate was sealed, and the ladies from the social left, knowing smiles on their faces. While we're on the subject of my looks I should tell you I got a figure nowadays It's filled out My bum is curvy in leggings I keep trim in the gym And people look They never looked before They never needed to I got laughing eyes too I used to have straggly pink hair after I escaped from hospital, I went to the salon to weed out my own shearing and hacking and get a different colour. My hair looks shoulder-length now. It is thick and dark and most comely. That is what Scarly said when she first clapped eyes on me. How comely my hair looked. How curvy my shapes was. Thing is, though, We looked so much the same, she might as well have been saying this about herself. But I am skipping way too ahead again. First, you need to hear something else about what happened to me in hospital. Because there was this junior man in white. He had bushy eyebrows and sticking-out ears. So he struggled being professional. On ward rounds, he kept doing his sizing-up-talent looks at my boobies. It was him that tipped me off. He popped along one day to tell me a medical secret. He says, my name ain't Jenny Whatever. It's Marley Godwin. Did I nearly pass out and faint? It was a miracle from heaven. I knew then the most absolute high and mighty one must have his missions for me. The rest of the medical secret, the bloke in white said, was that I am the child of parents called Bessie and Hedwin. Hedwin! Fucking Hedwin Godwin! The bloke in white scrunches his not-so-professional eyebrows next. He makes his voice low and whispery. The social weren't going to tell me nothing, he says. They was going to keep my past wrapped in a box. He said for medical reasons he reckoned I should know who I am. He wondered if hearing my god-given names might be jogging my memory. My gob was too smacked to say, but I thought things. Here's the first thought I thought when I got told I was someone different. I thought, I thought so. I fucking knew it all along. I fucking knew I wasn't me in the first place. I had other thoughts too. I thought about my hands. You know how you can hold up your hands? You can say your hands is yours to keep forever. Not unless your hands get cut off can they be taken. Am I right? So what I thought about my hands is, it's cause they can get cut off that they don't belong to you. It's the same with legs. It's the same with most of the rest of your bits. If any vitals get pinched one day, well, all you can do is moan. Yes, you can quip and moan all you like. I hear you say, what about brains, Marley? I will say this, it's no different with brains. Once someone takes your brains out, there ain't nothing you can do neither. You can't even quip and moan. It's worser. If your brains was really and truly yours, I would be able to take them away while you were asleep. And you would be able to get annoyed about it when you wake up and find out there's something missing. Am I right? Your brains can't never be yours. Once they get taken off you, you won't even know fuck all about it. So far, though, It is only scientists what has worked out exactly how to do this. If you're thinking, hmm, Marley has popped one psychoactive substance too many lately, let me remind you of this. Chemicals used to work fine, then I died. Now they are about as useless as my empty hands. And yes, if I sound like I'm having a moan, it's cause I do hark after my dazzled days. Those days got taken off me, right after my maker got science to bring me back to life. Amen. So here she is, and she ain't got nothing to show for it but these two hands. What can a girl do if she can't not keep hold of nothing? It was only later, when I slipped away from being safe and sound in hospital, and I looked up my cleverer sister in far-flung Cambridge, that my maker's prophecy truly come true. Amen, and praise be, and all the rest of it. It was only later when i slipped away from being safe and sound in hospital and i looked up my cleverer sister in and i looked up my cleverer sister in far flung cambridge louise recalls that charlotte was making them scrambled eggs on toast when their relationship ended It happened in February 2011. The conversation had been pleasant enough until Charlotte announced, out of the blue, that she'd bought herself a flat in Pimlico. She told Louise that she'd decided to move into her own property because she wanted to live more independently. At first, Louise didn't grasp it. When Charlotte mentioned casually that she'd been renting this place since well before Christmas... And that her tenant had only recently moved out, Louise broke down. She broke her golden rule. She tried to persuade Charlotte not to go. Charlotte seemed surprised that Louise should be so upset. I don't suppose your mother told you much about what happened before I disappeared. The memories for both of us are still painful. Unlike my exit, though, Charlotte's was instant and messy. While Louise worked herself into a ferment, she packed as many of her things as she could squeeze into a rucksack. When Louise reflects on it now, she's saddened by this aspect of Charlotte's behavior. It seemed calculated. A mentally rehearsed amicable dissolution of their relationship that didn't go according to plan and all because Louise dared to reveal the loss she felt In her haste, Charlotte left the photo albums behind They had belonged to her parents The fact that Charlotte forgot them gave Louise some small hope that they might still get together and talk things over more sensibly Charlotte promised to call, but she never did Louise didn't know where her place in Pimlico was. The silence between them was all that was left. When it became clear that Charlotte wasn't answering her phone anymore, Louise gave up trying. It would be five years before Charlotte spoke to Louise again. I couldn't find out much about what happened to her after she left. She didn't only cut Louise off, she cut her family off as well. In the spring of 2011, she was awarded a first-class honours for her dissertation on Hobbes. From time to time, Louise would pick up other snippets. Charlotte had begun to make a name for herself as a poet. One of her sonnets was published in the May 2013 edition of a journal called The Rhymer's Rag. Behind the cruelty, the words seemed to hide something, I saw your face when I first read it to you. We both felt it. Love discovered unexpected here, I turned to see what I would never know, your kiss in that forgiving shadow. Of all the lovers missed in my career, each deck of cards packed with meeting, in pairs, in flushes and the object of the game to plunder others and not to feel the shame Our love, our risk was only ever fleeting and all of it an unforgiving kindness plucked like hearts of hope while I would deal making jokers when there was nothing left to feel A momentary glimpse in so much blindness You saw me look, and in the cards I flicked the winning bluff you never could predict. What we found out was, it was in her poetry that Charlotte was sending her most intimate signals. In 2014, she was invited to give a reading at an event in London called the Shoreditch Literary Festival. It was attended by prominent critics. She was even mentioned in an article in The Guardian. It was said that her performance heralded the beginning of a promising career. She went on to win the Auden Poetry Prize in 2015. Her blank verse entry was called Forgery of a Young Woman. If I've made a lot of Charlotte's poetry, it's because what she wrote would become so instrumental in bringing us together again. In its own way, forgery of a young woman would turn out to be a milestone not only for our endeavour to find out what happened to Charlotte, but for us. The philosophical conundrum at the heart of the poem was drawn from Plutarch's Life of Theseus. Had you ever come across that? The question is, if an old ship is restored, plank by plank, is it the same ship as it was before? Or has it become an imitation of what it was? Sometimes this is called the Theseus Paradox. In Charlotte's forgery, the narrator was waiting to be seen at a doctor's surgery. The woman in the poem wanted to have an abortion. To distract herself, she picked up a magazine. Flipping through it, she came across a photograph of a Rembrandt from 1634 called Portrait of a Young Woman. The narrator's first impression was that the artist captured perfectly the woman's pleasure at being invited to sit for a portrait. The query in that look betrays a bolder nature, broken, parted lips, the strokes that brush with time. But then the narrator imagined the woman was pregnant too, and something weird happened to the portrait she was looking at. In it, the woman's flirtatious regard was transformed into one of hostility. It's as if the woman in the portrait was actually becoming angry. The narrator knew this couldn't be true. She knew that no single impression she could have about a person in a painting could be authentic. That's the true meaning of the poem in my eyes. Whatever was original about the woman, as the narrator says, the passing of time will ripped it away. Looking on, all she could ever perceive were the details of her own life, forever replaced by a future that spies on what we see with other eyes. The complexity of the work amazed me. And then, as the narrator waits to be seen by her doctor, the magazine now on her lap, her thoughts twist again. She realizes suddenly that if she can only be known through the heavy blur of personal impressions that others happen to have, with as many impressions as there are drops in the ocean, it isn't only the person observed who can never be defined, it's the person who's looking. By the end of the poem, the narrator can only see herself as inauthentic, an imitation of what she is. Brilliantly. The poem ends with her name being called. I think about you again. The pragmatism of your response was to see through the complexity to an important question. Could Charlotte have had an abortion? This question would lead us in a particular direction, but I just want to dwell on the poem for a moment. Do you see how forgery might have been about the reconstructions of a life or how we all end up imitating ourselves so much that all we're ever really doing is imitating a previous imitation? It's like Frankenstein's monster. But rather than being parts of people stolen from graves, crudely stitched together, we're more like a patchwork of the many parts of others remembered. I'll speak a little more about how Charlotte and Louise got back together. It was sudden. It would have been one night in August 2016. She telephoned Louise. It had been five years. She asked if she could come over. She tried to speak casually, as if no time at all had passed since they'd last seen one another. By the tremor in her voice, Louise knew Charlotte was upset. She kept her own tone light, telling Charlotte that it would be lovely to catch up. The conversation lasted less than a minute. Within half an hour, Charlotte was at Louise's door. She came by cab. As soon as she was inside, she began looking through the windows. She kissed Louise on the cheek and tried to make conversation, but she was obviously distracted. Finally, she revealed that she thought someone might have been following her hair was unbrushed, she'd lost a lot of weight. When Louise expressed her concern for Charlotte's well-being, Charlotte tried laughing it off. For a quarter of an hour, though, she kept her eyes peeled. While she stood at a kitchen window, Louise put the kettle on. After a while, when Charlotte was satisfied that she hadn't been followed after all, she asked Louise if there was any whisky. The only stiff drink Louise had was a bottle of Italian grappa. She'd bought it on a visit to Florence in 2013. Charlotte's gratitude seemed too gushing. She didn't want to know anything about Louise's trip to Italy. Over the next hour or so, not only did she avail herself of the contents of the bottle, she resolved to forget the whole miserable episode that had brought her back to Louise's home in the first place. She joked with Louise that she felt much better now that she had somewhere safe to hide. Although Louise was bursting with questions, she knew there was no point in asking any of them. From the strange and panicked entry she'd made, Charlotte had once again regained her composure. She led the conversation. She spoke mockingly of her minor successes as a poet. It meant nothing to her. She also mentioned a fling she'd had with someone called Julius. After drinking all the grappa, Charlotte fell asleep on the sofa. Louise covered her with a blanket and went to bed. She was certainly troubled by the way that Charlotte had crashed back into her life, and could only infer that at some stage, among other things, her friend had developed an addiction to alcohol.